brought to you by CGTN Europe. I'm Stephen Cole. Welcome to the Agenda podcast. There are currently more than 30 armed conflicts continuing around the world. Some grab the headlines, while others continue out of the global spotlight. As the fighting continues, there's always the hope that the conflicts will end in peace. This remains an important goal, but what happens once the fighting stops? Today on the Agenda podcast, we look at what we can learn from how peace and reconciliation has been achieved in different countries around the world. To find out more, I spoke to Lord John Alderdice, former leader of Northern Ireland's Alliance Party, about his role in the Good Friday Peace Agreement, which brought peace to the region after decades of religious division. It started in 1970, right through the Troubles. Uh, how did you sustain momentum through those years? The truth is the party didn't keep up the momentum. It went to and fro. My very first election was fought as a, a local government uh, candidate during the hunger strike. Uh, a very, very difficult period when the party went from uh, moving forward to being pushed back uh, in a very serious way. Uh, then we had the period of the Anglo-Irish Agreement where, uh, having lost many uh, nationalist supporters in the hunger strike period, we lost many unionist supporters during the, the protests against the Anglo-Irish Agreement. So it was a hugely confusing an angry time Very. Of, of many killings as well, extrajudicial killings. Absolutely. How did you start to deal with that kind of level of violence and division? I think people had in themselves a great sense of conviction and principle. This was our community. Something horrible was happening in it. None of us wanted to go anywhere. We wanted to try to resolve our problems. And we really did believe, despite what everybody else thought, that it was perfectly possible for Protestants and Catholics, Unionists and Nationalists to live together with good relations with the rest of the UK and the Republic of Ireland. Is that the emotion you have to tap into, the desire for peace and reconciliation? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I've just finished uh, doing a, a 10 years of work on the use of, of peace, uh, or the use of water uh, as, as something that can bring peace rather than conflict uh, in, in the Middle East and in various places. And what I've become quite convinced about is, yes, it is possible to use it, but only if there is a real desire for peace and an end of conflict. If the people want to continue on fighting, uh, then they will continue fighting no matter what you do. Once, however, you get to a hurting stalemate, where both sides feel that we can't win, we can't be defeated, but we can't win, then you can begin to get people to look at things in a different kind of way. And that's what happened in Northern Ireland. And talk us through the Good Friday Peace Agreement. You're one of the architects uh, of that agreement. Where did you start with that? Well, the first thing was to try to see the problem in a different way. And what we began to say was, this is not fundamentally about borders or policing or any of these kinds of things. What it's about is disturbed historic relationships between communities of people. In most situations where people are trying to address conflict, they simply try to get the people together, sometimes even force them together. Get them around the table. Get them around the table and force them to reach an agreement. You Lock the door, throw away the key until they get an agreement. We tried that. That didn't work because there's always somebody who can pull it apart. Even if you get an agreement, if people aren't committed to it, they can shred it, and it's a complete waste of time. In fact, it's worse than that because it makes people feel that there is no hope. 
So what we tried to do was get a different kind of language, a different way of understanding it, that it was about relationships between communities of people. Relationships are not just something in the here and now. If you have a relationship with somebody, it has a history. It, it, there's a time when things were good or bad, and, and as you meet the person in the here and now, you can remember how it was. Was it good? Was it bad? Were there problems, difficulties? And in particular, in these disturbed relationships, if you ha have an experience of humiliation and disrespect, if you experience this a profound unfairness, if peaceful democratic ways of sorting the problems haven't worked, then you have the material there for violent conflict. Which can be applied to most violent conflict. Absolutely. Everywhere I've gone in the world, the Middle East, Sub-Saharan Africa, Latin America, the Balkans, South Asia, this is the commonality of the human condition. All the, there's the history, the politics, the religion, maybe all different. But you always find in these situations, if there's violent conflict, at least one and often more than one community that has these three experiences of humiliation and disrespect, of profound unfairness, and of not being able to resolve the problem in peaceful democratic means. You talk about the human condition. You were a practicing psychiatrist. Did you use your skills and what you learnt during the negotiations for the Good Friday Peace Agreement? Absolutely. And in fact, more than that, I actually went into that kind of work uh, to try to understand why people would behave in a self-destructive way. Because the politics at the time I came in was based on a rational actor model that people operate in their best socio-economic and power interests. What was completely clear to me was that the people in my community were not acting in their best interests. The IRA ended up killing more people in the Catholic community than Protestants or British soldiers. And that's true wherever you go. If you go to Peru, the Shining Path damaged uh, ordinary people far more than they damaged the, the Peruvian army. It's the same with the Maos in Nepal. It's the same everywhere. Colombia as well. In Colombia, very, very much so, with, with FARC and the ELN and, and so on. So I, I thought, we need to understand this in a different kind of way. And that's why I went into psychiatry and psychoanalysis. However, what we were dealing with was not problems of individual people, but problems of a whole community of people. Individuals would often say, oh, but I get very, on very well with Protestants, or I get on very well with Catholics. That's not the issue. Nor is that the resolution of the problem. So taking kids from Protestant and Catholic backgrounds away to spend six or eight weeks with each other and build up friendships, and so that doesn't resolve the problem either. Because when they came back to their community, the communities were still divided. Now, of course, if you can get leaders to engage personally with each other, that's a different thing. But they still have to bring their community with them. So it's a question of large group psychology more than individual psychology. Peace has broken out, to use a bad expression. Uh, you followed up with reconciliation. Then, how do you sustain the peace? How do you build the reconciliation? Well, the, the key thing is these are relationships. They're not something that you sort any more than you sort your game of golf, you know. It has its ups and downs. The relationships go to and fro. They require the building of trust. Trust isn't a prerequisite for a peace process. It's an outcome of a peace process. And it's not something that is ever sorted because people can do things that then break the trust down. You mentioned reconciliation. We have not achieved reconciliation. And, 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 and I, I don't know whether we ever will. What we've got done is we've got to a point where we can disagree with each other without killing each other and where we've created structures through which we can work together with all our disagreements. And you can see those disagreements continue to emerge. For example, 
There are still those who see the Good Friday Agreement as, as a route towards a united Ireland and that Brexit may give that an opportunity to move forward further. And there are others for whom the Good Friday Agreement was the limit of how far they were prepared to go from a unionist point of view and who felt that that had stabilised Northern Ireland's position in the UK but because of Brexit are now beginning to wonder if that's actually true. The ability to forgive, if not forget, is of course key to any peace and reconciliation process. Which joining me now from West Rand in South Africa is the author of the book Forgiveness Redefined, written by Candice Mama. Candice, thank you so much for joining us. You, you have an incredible tale of forgiveness, so tell us your story. Hi, Stephen. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, so my story is based in South Africa. And so just jumping straight into it, when I was nine months, my father was brutally murdered by an apartheid assassin by the name of Eugene de Kock. And when I was around nine years old, I discovered a picture of my dad's burnt body in a book called Into the Heart of Darkness by Jacques Poe. And that went on to change my life in many ways. And so I got depressed. I started suffering from physical ailments from the anger I was carrying. And around the age of 16, I was admitted to hospital. And the doctor confirmed that my body was killing me. And in that moment, I had a decision to make. Was I going to continue living in anger and resentment? Or was I going to attempt to let go of that anger by using forgiveness? And so I started that path, and around 23, I met Eugene in prison, and I managed to forgive him. How you went on to meet your father's killer, can you tell us about yeah. that? Yes, so I never thought it would happen for me, to be honest. So it came out of the blue. Um, the National Prosecuting Authorities contacted my family, and they asked us, would we like to meet Eugene? And of course, it was something we all was shocked about. None of us were really prepared for it. And I decided immediately that I was going to go. And so I went with the rest of my family who eventually decided they'd come along with me. And when we met Eugene, it was a surreal experience, as many would imagine. Uh, he was named Prime Evil by the media. He's been named a lot of different um, evil words. And so I had an expectation going in as to what I was going to encounter. Um, I didn't think that I would leave that meeting, you know, uh, having extended the branch of forgiveness towards Eugene. And most importantly, I think having embraced them at the end of that encounter. You said it was a, a surreal experience, which it must have been, but what, what emotions did it evoke in you? Wow, so many. I think going into the encounter, I didn't actually know how I was, I was going to take it, you know, because although I thought I'd forgiven Eugene for my health, for myself, uh, I didn't know what it would be like sitting across from him. And so as we were talking, I actually didn't say anything. My family started speaking and, you know, Eugene told us what happened to my father. And he broke down many other things and many other operations that he took part in. And so when he broke down the story about my father in particular, he told us that my father was actually ambushed. And so Eugene ran down the Nelspray Bridge when he saw that his team hadn't managed to stop my father. And so he emptied out his magazine cartridge on my father's vehicle and into my father, and then he doused them all in fuel and he set them alight. 
So after hearing that, of course, I was upset. I was uh, taken aback. I'd never heard that much detail before. However, at the end of the encounter, as we were wrapping it up, my family started saying, you know, Eugene, I forgive you. I forgive you. And when it got to me, I had a question for him. And I said, you know, Eugene, I want to say I forgive you. But before I do, I want to ask you one question. And he said, of course, what's that? And I said, do you forgive yourself? And he looked away and he dabbed the side of his eye and he said to me when you've done the things I've done how do you forgive yourself and in that moment I just broke down I started crying and sobbing and I realized that I wasn't sobbing for myself but for the man in front of me and that's what really surprised me and I suppose hearing your story you you're never going to reach uh, your own peace unless you find forgiveness Absolutely. I think you summed it up so well. And I think for me, I always break down between forgiveness and reconciliation. So for me, forgiveness is a very personal act. It's about you. It's about saying, I refuse for this incident or this person to continue controlling me. And then reconciliation is the second part of that for me. It's about sitting in front of that person or those people and then extending that branch to them and saying, now I choose to engage with you and now I decide whether I want to extend this branch of forgiveness towards you. That brings us to the end of another edition of The Agenda. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher and Spotify. You can also find us on CGTN Europe, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and YouTube. The most interesting questions. Are there other living beings beyond Earth? Will man or machine be in charge? Great question. Always have more than one answer. Well, hold on, uh, let me just draw up a list. And always come from more than one person. That's where the credibility lies. The concept of having a machinery which is alive and evolving didn't wait for us. The end of inequality of incomes and wealth around the world, can you imagine how difficult that is at the moment to achieve? Every episode, Stephen Cole, Murray Beveridge, and some of the brightest minds out there shed light on the answers to some of the most intriguing questions. There are two ways of looking at this. Machines can't really discriminate between civilian and military targets. The Answers Project. Maybe we need to just look at this in a bit more detail. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. The Answers Project, a new podcast from CGTN Europe.